you. Um, I had a golden retriever puppy once that I was trying to sit, teach to sit and stay. And he uh, was very eager and very loving and very willing. And I'd put his tushy down on the ground and say, sit. And he would look up at me and wiggle and stand up right away. And then I'd put his tush down on the ground again and I'd say, sit. And he'd be popping up again. And that went on for a time. And eventually he learned to sit, stay or lay, stay for as much as an hour at a time, very alert and very present. I sometimes think of myself and my mind on certain days as a golden retriever puppy. That's putting it kindly. I have a lot of wiggling that goes on in my head, in my body, and sometimes not, thank heavens, for this practice that helps me eventually to sit, be here. So Thai reminds us that the Sanskrit word for mindfulness means to remember. They were remembered to come back to the present moment. Suzuki Roshi says, when our thinking is soft, it is called imperturbable thinking. It is called mindfulness. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, mindfulness means awareness, and it also means looking deeply. When we stop and maintain awareness of an object and go deeply into it to observe it, the boundary dissolves between subject and object. They become one. So the Satipatthana Sutta is the study of the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body in the body. Mindfulness of the feelings in the feelings. Mindfulness of the mind in the mind. And mindfulness of the phenomena in the phenomena. So what I'm wanting to do tonight um, is to focus on the experience of these words, not, not to stay too caught up in the concept, but to bring the concepts down into how we actually experience this, these wisdom teachings, so to move into the practice of them. So. The journey begins with establishing mindfulness in the body, including our breath. So I want to just open this up. Um, Karen's going to spot people, and I will try to, too, to, to invite you to speak into how do you work with this? How do you understand mindfulness in the body? How do you relate to this? How do you experience your own body? And how do you practice with this awareness of your body? <coughs> mm -hmm. 
just to cue us off perhaps to say I, I used to teach in the jail meditation in the jails when I lived in LA and one of my most startling learnings was the number of people who actually when I would say so experience your breath in your body that people had virtually no concept of what I was talking about at all they, there was no experience of actually of the body except for when they had to go to the bathroom when they wanted to have sex when they wanted to eat or drink that was their that was their contact with body so I can't see Joe Joe yeah um can you hear me all right yes you froze up for me so i don't know if i'm having problems we can hear you joe yeah it must be some internet thing on my side um I'll wait, I'll wait and let, uh, hopefully someone else go. Okay. I come back because we're here. We're hearing you. So I'm curious for this silence. Am I assuming that no one works with their body in meditation practice? I can't see. Sue? Oh, Sue Osher? Thank you. Yeah, I guess I am right with those ladies in the prison. Um, it, you know, I just went blank about how, what does that mean? Um, I certainly think of it. What is I? My, I put my attention on my breath and my posture, mm -hmm. and I do that a lot during the day. And other than that, I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, it's, a, yes, thank you. So it's one of the things that Ty speaks of is uh, among the many exercises that he recommends with this is doing body scans. I don't know if some people here have practiced with those, but virtually starting either at the top of the head or at your feet and scanning slowly all the way up through your body on the outside and the inside of your body. And he even sometimes adds to that or added to that um, awareness of my toes, I am grateful for my toes as a practice, and then working all the way through the body and stopping enough to be present with your toes, with the soles of your feet, etc. That's an interesting practice. Um, Jeff, is it your hand up? Jeff? Yeah. You know, for me, I, I tend to notice the presence most when I present, when I'm in a Zoom call, when I'm in a conversation talking to clients, 
I'm aware of being grounded in my body, that my words are rooted in, 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 in what I'm saying, comes from a firm foundation. When I notice the lack of it, as I notice it first in, in my feelings, I've become agitated. Something has triggered me. And because it's kind of so loud for me, I notice the lack pretty quickly, but it's, it's almost kind of an inside out thing for me. The, the thing that I, I read that I thought was so, so good was the idea of strong, balanced awareness. And that's sort of where the idea comes from for me. I'm, I'm aware of being seated um, in a very solid way when I'm doing that, and less so when, when I'm not until I become upset. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Lori. Lori. Hi, I, I, I had my, my couldn't get my Wi-Fi to work, so I came on late. Um, so I was holding back. <laughs> That's why I wasn't saying anything. I felt like I missed too much. But um, I guess this is, I don't know if this is related to what Jeff was saying. I, I guess where I notice it most effectively or find it most useful is sort of like the connection between emotions and the body. So it's a, it's, it's a way to know that I'm nervous or, you know, that something's making me nervous or something hurt my feelings or something. Mm -hmm. I'm scared or, you know, I, I know I, I'm, I think it's much easier to feel emotions in the body than as, as ideas. And so um, I think the effort of mindfulness for me in the body, even though he's not really talking about this and he has a whole nother one on feelings, it's, is really about, that line between sort of emotions in the body, how the, how the, how the, you know, something's going to, an emotion because it's in your body somehow, you know, as opposed to a thought, which is in my head or something. So I think as a practice, it helps to be aware of what's happening in my body in response to what's happening, you know, so-called outside or whatever. Thank you. Thank you. Joe, are you able to come back in or no? I think so. I think I was waiting on Lori to fix the Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, I, I was just going to share sort of my uh, experiences in the Zendo when uh, someone's handed me the Kokyo book. And um, usually it's fine until the Doan gets up to light the candles. And then my heart starts pounding like mad. And uh, I really enjoy being Kokyo, but it's interesting, you know, um, that pounding and it, uh, it'll usually keep going. And when I unmute on Zoom, my heart, you know, is pounding right now, um, even though um, <laughs> there's not really a mental sense of terror. It's just a, um, a thing that's going on um, in my body that, um, experiencing it in the zendo helps me uh maybe be more aware now that it's happening you know and it's just died down and um so yeah i think being able to do it in a quiet quiet safe space uh helps a little bit out in the world um with with just being able to recognize those sort of uh changes changes in uh um in my body 
Yeah. And you just did it because you, mm-hmm. you were talking about your heart pounding and then noticing, being aware that it had shifted in mm-hmm. it, you're making it shift, but that by being aware of it, it also allowed it a movement in effect. Thank you. Years ago, I was um, in a sangha where uh, Gil Fronstel came to do uh, trainings every few months. And the first time I was ever with him, he had us do a meditation of simply watching our breath, but watching it from the origin, feeling it from the place of origin, wherever that is, but where we notice the origin, let's say, in our belly and uh, watching it and naming it as it went up, rising, midway, top, then that slight pause, and then descending on the out-breath, descending, descending, descending. So we were quite discreet. It became quite discreet, just this uh, observation of the breath and the body, which we say is a phrase, or a, we say those words, but that we were really spending quite a piece of time just staying minutely with the breath rising up and, and going back uh, down again. It was very powerful. Pauline has a question. Pauline, I can't see her. I guess she's on another page. Pauline, hi. Oh, hey. Oh, oh, I was just uh, um, gonna gonna chime in on the body thing. I uh, like Joe. I was thinking about stuff that you know happens in the sendo, and I actually I, I don't know if this is just me or if it's um, common to to other people, but I my my relationship with my body, I think, is it's often felt like a like a car that I don't really know how to drive, uh, a, a, a vehicle that I'm trying to to, to maneuver around and through sort of an awkward interface. And at the start of a meditation period, I often feel that I'm trying to parallel park it. That, uh, you know, something something is wrong. Something is, is off balance, off kilter. And I try to, ju- and, and it doesn't, you know, it, it's actually, it's a, I find it a very, very difficult practice to actually get it parked and so, sort of in a balanced position where it can stay. Um, I, and I, I wouldn't, I just wondered how common that was for, for others. Others want to respond to that, that experience. I've never, I've never heard that, that particular metaphor, but I love that. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just me. But <laughs> Wonderful. I, I think it probably, is shared by many. I did receive a message from the chat. Okay, please. uh, Where Colleen is saying, I have precisely that experience. (laughs) Great. Uh, Mira, you need to unmute. I think I. Whoops, Mira, you're muted again. Okay. There you go. There you go. I think I spent a lot of the zazen period 
um, mindful of my body. Um, I'm always checking out if my back stays erect because I think that's really important for the breath to flow smoothly and fully. So I'm always working on my back and then lowering my shoulders because my shoulders tend to go up, pulling them back. So I feel like I'm uh, ranging my body throughout Zazen. And then I'm aware of the different pains in my knees or legs or so um, it's a lot of body awareness for me the whole, the whole practice I know Sojin that's what he advised was to um, be constantly um, viewing reviewing your posture as you're sitting you know and people do it definitely with their mudra um, I'm not that seems a little to me, but a lot of people definitely work with the mudra. I let my thumbs fall a little. I don't care so much about that, but uh, it's definitely a body practice. Thank you, Russ, and then Dan. Thank you. Um, what came to mind was uh, Soji Roshi saying that a car is not a car until you get inside, turn the key, put in the clutch and put it in gear and drive. So uh, the thought arose that it looks like we're, um, we're parked on the cushion and maybe not, the key hasn't been turned and we're not actually in gear and going. And what is that like? And as Mir was saying, you know, being aware of, of our posture, is kind of like gearing up, so to speak, and being enlivened by uh, Zazen practice. And um, when I've caught myself thinking about things extraneous to to the fundamentals of our, of our practice, then I'm like spinning in neutral. And I'm not in my body, I'm just like in my head thinking. Right. And um, I really like uh, after service, uh, either doing cleaning in the zendo or outside sweeping because even though we can think, I can think during that is less likely to think because I'm concentrating on what's in front of me. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how it, um, right mindfulness uh, feels uh, congruent with Sojin's teaching about getting in the car, turning the key and going for it. Thank, Thank you. Let's do one more, uh, Dan, before we move to the second one. Yeah, I have an experience um, in Zazen sometimes that sort of points to the difference between a kind of focused mindfulness and a more, I don't know, I wouldn't call it passive, but less focused. And it sort of when, say, I'm focusing on my breath, either counting it, and just generally at the beginning of a Zazen period. Uh, counting my breath or just following it, but it's very much like focused on the breath, just itself. And it's, it feels like an active process in my mind to stay focused on that and to follow it. But lately I've been finding that later in that same period, I become aware, not just of my breath, I'm mindful of my breath, but actually of my whole body that is breathing. And that feels both more passive, like it's not something I'm actively 
consciously doing. It's just the awareness is just happening. It also feels deeper somehow. Um, like the first one is a preliminary stage or something. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if that, you know, resonates with anybody. The sort of active focus, you know, like a light, like a light bulb, a light beam shining on my breath versus just being aware of it happening. I'm going to move us on to this, the second stage here. Thank you, Dan. The second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the feelings in the feelings. So we're talking here both about physical body sensations, which some people have alluded to, and also emotional feelings. And one of the aspects of the sutra describes labeling these sensations, these feelings, the practice of labeling them simply as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Gilfram still suggests, and I think this is quite interesting, noticing in mindfulness, which of these three tends to color or influence your behavior or to color your days is what he asks about. So in effect, he says, what have you become aware of in mindfulness about your tendencies? So as you're sitting, as we are sitting, observing our breath, being with our breath, and then feelings or sensations arise and we work with them in different ways, be with them in different ways. But I think he's also talking about off as well, off the cushion. What is our tendency of mind? If we pay attention to that over time, do we tend toward uh, a sense of unsatisfactoriness in our view of life in our daily view or satisfactoriness or uh, neutralness can you i i find this a very penetrating question to go with because and i certainly observe this for myself is that resonant for you So for example, I can say that I have grown aware that I have a slight, I don't know if it's slight, I have a tendency to move from, let's say neutral to a slight aversive, unsatisfactory um, state, which can take many forms of something off something wrong, something needing change, some, uh, it has a negative uh, twinge on it that I notice in my uh, thought process. It's, I think it has changed over time with practice, but, and I, that is still a tendency, a lean. 
So the so first is is what how are you aware or are you aware of your tendency of mind and how do you accompany them? Thich Nhat Hanh would say, how do you keep them company? Yes, Karen, please. Can you hear me? Karen, who's speaking? Oh, it's Nina, sorry. I thought it was Karen. Oh, it is, it is me. I'll call on Nina in a second. Oh. Um, I was just gonna say in terms of mind, um, you know, my mind was very critical you know, and I found myself also having aversions a lot and criticizing things and people around me. And over years of practice, the more I was able to let go of that, the happier I was. And the deeper the practice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Nina, thank you. Nina, are you there? Yeah, yeah, Hi. I'm here. Um, I've got two things come to mind. Many years ago, I, I, I was living in Boulder and I went to a nursing home to find a job to work. Mm -hmm. And I was just engulfed by stench. And I thought, oh, this is terrible. I can't stand this. And then the next thought was, this is where I need to be. So uh, it actually turned out that it was, you know, very, very gratifying work. Um, but it was that acceptance and and um, yeah, or I, I guess I can just say it was a accepting the environment just as it was and, and then it no longer was impeding yeah. and the other thing that comes to mind is whenever i i catch myself um you know having some kind of negative reaction and i notice that it just changes right away the minute i notice it it just doesn't have the power over me. Thank you. There's something about putting your, shining your light there that allows it to change your shift. Yeah. I, I want to just underline this this um, question before we move on to the third foundation because I think it's it's a very um, it's a very powerful thing to to really observe the tone the tones of mind and how we how we shift into them and then as we become more aware of them that that begins also to change over time but they're very strong habit formations i think that we have our brain tendencies mind tendencies feeling tendencies 
that starting from neutral, we move in some some direction and to become aware of that, to really become aware of that is to allow the possibility for shifting at the base eventually, not immediately. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind in the mind. Sometimes when I read these phrases, they what it does it I can, it's very hard to fathom from the from the way it's written for me sometimes these are referred to often as mental formations so for example anger is a formation Tikhan Han says every time a mental formation arises we can practice mere recognition mere recognition so when we're agitated, we can say, we can notice, I am agitated. Or another way of going at that is agitation is present. This is already there. So not to be agitated. It means that when we are agitated, we know we are agitated. It's a big, it's a, as opposed to, I shouldn't be feeling agitated or I need to get rid of this agitation right now, but simply this experience of agitation is present. So Tai speaks of the five hindrances of sensual desire, anger, dullness and drowsiness, agitation and remorse and doubt and says the practitioner remains established in the observation of the objects of mind they're coming to be and the process of dissolution so then we can focus here on how do you how do you have this experience? How do you notice the process of arising and the process of dissolution? Or what Nina was referring to, the I think in putting your attention to an arising of a sensation or a feeling and putting your attention, your light toward it, that a shifting then is possible to begin, not always automatically, but, but is possible to begin. And there can be then a dissolution. So curious, how, how is this aspect of practice for people? What's your experience with this? Sue, oh sure. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, I know that I've been given a second time to speak, and I hope people will jump in so I don't get a third one. <laughs> you got me thinking. I um, 
I think there's a stepping back that happens in our practice that adds cooling and perspective uh, to the mental formations. So um, sometimes what I found lately, because I was in an extreme anxiety, talking to someone is um, really important. And it can calm things, it calms things down. That's about all I can think of at the moment. Thank you. Sue Dunlap, did you have your hand up, Sue, or no? I did. Um, I have found this a, a difficult practice. At some point, I remember doing this practice sitting, um, and it was so tense. You know, it's like somebody says to you, we, we have a mouse problem here in the kitchen. Um, see if you notice the mouse. Um, so you're kind of sitting tensely and you're looking around at the bottom of the cabinets and you are looking under the fridge and you're sitting still and you're kind of watching one way or another. Um, and the... The search for the mouse kind of overwhelms everything else. What's the answer to that? What is your answer so far with that, Sue? Well, in my mouse experiences, um, I have never actually seen the mouse. I have known that the mouse is probably there but I have never really eyeballed him. Um, so I think that, I mean, it's, it's easy to see when a thought goes reasonably because it's there. It's like the mouse, you know, he's sitting and he's sitting right there in front of the fridge with your cheese, cheese and eventually he picks up the cheese and he trots out of the kitchen. But to see when it begins is a whole different issue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Of your thoughts on this? Luminous Heart, there's a question from the chat. Mm -hmm. How is remorse a hindrance? I'd love to know who asked that. But it, I, my understanding is that none of these things are hindrances if unless they become obstacles. So to feel, to sense remorse is not per se a hindrance unless it stays, it stays as hindrance, it stays unlit, it stays un, uh, un how do I, Dick Han would say unaccompanied, unparented, then it, then it can operate and impact and color one's other larger experience, life experience, I think. That's how I would go. Other people's thoughts on that? Yes, uh, Janae. You have to unmute. So, yeah. Um, I'm glad whoever asked that because when you were reading off the list, uh, I said, 
Well, tell me how sensual desire is a hindrance. I mean, I know how it can become an obsession or something, and that's clear to see, but I I appreciate your answer, uh, Luminous Heart, about, you know, when it is a hindrance and when it isn't, any yeah. of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I, th I, yeah, thank you. I just in the service of time here, I'm going to move us on to the last, the fourth foundation. Fourth foundation of mindfulness is observing dharmas in dharmas or objects of the mind in the objects of the mind. So I want to quote Gil here again. The journey of mindfulness leads to the fourth foundation of mindfulness where we have a clear recognition of the mental processes operating in relation to our mental states. This involves cultivating wisdom about what our minds do to cause suffering and what we can do to overcome suffering, which includes the seven mental processes that support the mind to be tranquil and liberated. And here comes one of the great Buddhist lists. Here are the seven mental processes. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And to have a clear knowledge of the four noble truths as insight leading to liberation. So again, Gil asks one of his good provocative questions here. What are some of the attachments that you understand well enough to let go relatively easily of your own attachments? And can you sense the benefits of that? And then he asks, what are some of the stronger attachments that you have that are harder for you to release. And then lastly, what do you discover are things that you can't even imagine releasing? <laughs> so I could just jump in on the first one to say that the ones that feel relatively easy to release for me are ones where they rise up, whatever the it is, and I have this sort of Simon and Garfunkel sense of, uh, oh, hello, darkness, my old friend, kind of a familiarity. Oh, hello there, my little, Tignatan used to say, oh, hello, my little anger. I don't say that to my anger so much, but I can say, oh, hello, my little doubt. Hello there. And there's something benignly observant about just seeing seeing it rise up again as it has risen 4,000 times before that allows it to just pass through. So that's one of my easy ones, one of my easy attachments. So what are some for you that you're aware of that are either easy, you find relatively easy, and ones that you find that you that really keep resurfacing and are hard to release, hard to let go through.
For example, how do people work with held resentment? Long-term resentments. Disappointment. Disappointment. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at Jeff. Did you want to say? And then I'm looking at time because I I need to shift over and pass on to uh, Ron. Can you? Kathy, Kathy has her hand up too. And Kathy, yeah. No, no, I'm I'm okay. Please, please go move along. Sorry. Okay, no worry, Kathy, wherever you are. Right here. Can you hear me? No. Uh, I hear you. Okay, great. Um, so I'm new to this community. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, so I um, uh, was kind of pleased <laughs> the other weekend I was... Um, you know, I've been having a little bit of a tough time and I was, and I, and I noticed, I was like, oh, there's my old feelings of abandonment, <laughs> you know, from my childhood, uh, latchkey kid experience, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh, there they are again. And I was like able to get a little separation, which was kind of nice. So I, I offer that as an example. Thank you, Kathy. Welcome to us. <laughs> I am going to stop. I leave you though with these these um, questions. I find I think they're quite provocative. The ones that can always pose. I'm going to end with a quote from Norman Fisher, which I love very much about mindfulness. Mindfulness is more than just a meditative practice. Mindfulness is life. And life is love. That's why it's the whole path of the Bodhisattva. Thank you. Ryan. <laughs> Thank you, Luminous Heart. Um, uh, Karen, I'm, okay, that's good. Um, so I'd like to uh, shift over to concentration. Uh, and like, I don't know if it's like mindfulness in the sense that um, it's something that concentration is, you know, intimate with Zazen. And I assume that everybody here is, is interested in some way or participates in some way in doing Zazen. So um, when we say the word concentration, when I hear that word, it just kind of, it's very very broad and kind of generic feeling I get when I hear the word concentration. But when I think about it during Zazen and my experience with it, it's not generic. It has a very specific kind of feeling and which is not always the same and uh, our energy to it. So I was just curious, uh, something that is, and by the way, Zen, uh, uh, has concentration as its center 
more than any other Buddhist school that I'm aware of. And actually our name, uh, Chan turned into uh, Zen, Chan in China turned into Zen in Japan. And we kept the word Zen because it's a cool word. Uh, but then uh, Chan, the word Chan comes from jhana or dhyana in uh, Sanskrit and Pali, which uh, mean med basically meditation or, or samadhi. So our whole name, actually, Zen, comes from the word, constant, uh, the Pali or Sanskrit word for uh, concentration or meditation. So I'm just curious, even though it's a very generic word that we use all the time in, in other all kinds of ways, um, what's just, just a few people, what's your experience in your own Zazen practice? How would you, not so much analytically, but experientially, what's your feeling about, or what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? If you, if you picture yourself in doing Zazen um, and you think about how the aspect of, of concentration within that, how would you express that? Uh, Joe? I would say relaxed. Okay. That, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you know, and Mira, just a minute. Um, uh, you, you probably know that um, a gill really it promotes relaxation as a part of concentration, really mentions it. Uh, very, very careful to mention that because our tendency is to be driving, to be concentrated. I'm going to stay with us and I'm going to really concentrate and be focused. And, and they're kind of a hard edge. He's, he's warning against a kind of a hard edge attitude about it. And what you're describing is something which is much softer and that is uh, quite nice. I like that. Uh, Mira? Um. So when I apply myself and make more of an effort, um, it's following my breath in a one-pointed way. So I'm really trying to follow my breath, moving up maybe to my nostrils and moving down my body into my hara and really staying with my breath. So to me, concentration is that one-pointedness and to not let myself go into my thoughts, you know, keep bringing myself back. Um, to your breathing? Yes, is that what you're saying? breathing. Okay. Staying with my breathing. That's, that's yeah. to me, is the, con the point of concentration. Yeah. With my breathing yeah. and sense. And I know, because um, I did some jhana practice, I was interested in that. So I did a long retreat, a month of jhana practice. Yeah. In jhana practice, it's really, really pushing for that um, one-pointedness. And they yeah. often focus um, in this part of the body, right below the nostrils. Yeah. Yeah, if we have time, um, we'll talk about the jhana, jhanas, but we'll see if we have time for that. Yeah. That's good. Uh, anybody else? Uh, in the third row here uh, over on the right, 
I don't know your name. Um, yes. Mr. Karen, you see that? Joanne. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, can, I should be able to see the names. I you need to move my mouse here. Okay, Joanne. Oh, thank you, that's okay. Um, I was thinking of the word return when you said concentration. And, and I guess I don't think of concentration as being in any particular spot or like even in breathing, but actually kind of returning to the present. And that could be my body often, usually, hopefully is, but it's also just where I am, the present, like what, what is happening. And yeah. it could be a thought, it could be a feeling. And I, and I look at it and I see that it's there and I do the like, hello, <laughs> try to do the hello. And I, try, I think often of that Suzuki Roshi, the little that's hung up outside the Zendo with like the front door and open the back door and don't serve them tea, like the, the feelings, the formations, thoughts. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if it's really concentrate. I, I guess concentration should be like a one pointedness. I, I don't even know if I can do it, but I think more of a, a broader kind of awareness. So, and just returning to not even my breath, sometimes my breath, but the present. And I don't know if that's different. Maybe it's the same, but maybe. Well, what you're talking about is, is kind of, it fits well with uh, two kinds of concentration that Gil talks about, and probably um, I think Thich Nhat Hanh does too, which is um, one is active, and um, let's see what the other one. Um, what's the other one besides active? Um, active and selective. So you're talking about active concentration, which is just a broad whatever comes up. You're aware of that, or you're more you're more in that direction. Selective is you pick one thing, like your breath, your hara, your belly or your underneath your nose or your something you could do anything actually and you just focus on that so that's selective and what you're talking about is more active so those are two kinds of concentration and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up actually yeah. thank you okay okay well let's move on to a, a different so anyway what my point is is that um we, the word concentration is easy to take for granted, but become really intimate with it in Zazen. And our concentrate, our feeling may be, it will like very, very, you can, it's safe to say that all of our feelings are not the same. And we have different, different emphases and different sensations about how we understand concentration, even though it's all in the same family. Um, it's a it's a lively it's a lively subject and um, very very central maybe the most central aspect of zazen I'd say um, one thing that Gil in his I want to just move on to another point that um, Gil says in his uh, uh, about three pages in his short book that um, in the book uh, Steps to Liberation, he breaks it down into a kind of formula 
Although, you know, it's not a, it's not really a formula. It's like a recipe, but it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't take it too seriously or too exactly. And I don't think he meant it like that, that his formula is 25% in concentration. 25% is intentional effort. 25% is receptivity or equanimity and 50% is letting go. So that's just something that Gil has come up with, but it, it resonated with me is that those elements, maybe not in, in those proportions, but those elements are really three really good elements. The intentional effort, you know, the, I'm gonna, you know, it just take effort to sit straight for 40 minutes or to sit with a, a, a posture that's alive and, and upright for 40 minutes and, a mind that's just not wandering all over the block, or if it is, then you're aware, you're, you're aware of that that's happening. And then receptivity or equanimity is um, just being aware of what's happening, just to take it in without, without a, a goal other than just to, just to be with it. And then, then he gives 50% to letting go, which is just a kind of relaxation of just letting go of, of our kind of manic mindedness and uh, attachment to our mental constructions. So I just wonder how that lands on you or how you would maybe jigger those proportions to uh, reflect your own experience more. Uh, Ross? Uh, thanks, Ron. Uh, when I start hearing all the numbers and techniques and all that, it feels very prescriptive and like a stepladder, like we're doing something, we're to get something. And um, I liked uh, what someone said earlier about just concentration and feeling and awareness, like in the room. And I remember Mel talking about Suzuki Roshi sitting and being aware of everyone. There was concentration, but it wasn't just one pointed thing. It was just a, it was an awareness that he was perceptive of, of all things. And um, uh, let's see, um, you know, there's a saying, um, Zazen isn't a technique, it's a gateway to repose and bliss. And so what I'm feeling is a lot of technique. And I'm wondering if you could say something about repose and bliss, how you, how you may experience repose and bliss in the midst of this so-called technique that's uh, being discussed tonight. Well, he's saying that 50% is letting go. So that's one, one way of letting go of technique. And then 25%. Now, again, Gil is not saying this is like, like this is like a scientific analysis. He's just coming up with some, his own experience. I don't, don't I wouldn't take it too literally but those three elements are really, I think, helpful to pay attention to. That's, that's why I brought it up. But I don't think Gil would um, mean it as this has to be like in this proportion or this ratio. That's just his experience. But it, it, the, the three parts that he mentioned mm -hmm. um, all felt uh, real to me. Um, what you're saying that Suzuki Roshi said, we actually have as part of our handout and so I'll, because you brought it up, it's kind of convenient to read it. It's only a paragraph uh, long and pretty simple. And this is about um, 
this would be about active concentration okay. versus, versus um, selective concentration. Um, and this is from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Uh, actually, it's, it's under um, uh, a true concentration in, in Zen, not always so, I'm sorry. Um, you accept your thinking because it is already there. You cannot do anything about it. There is no need to get... Um, okay, uh, I, this is going to be a little confusing, but I'll explain it after I read it. There is no need to try to get rid of it. This is not a matter of right or wrong, but how you accept, frankly, with openness of mind, what you are doing. That is the most important point. When you practice Zazen, you will accept the you who is thinking about something without trying to be free of the images you have. Oh, here they come. If somebody is moving over there, oh, he is moving. And if he stops moving, your eyes remain the same. This is how your eyes will set or see when you are not watching anything special. In that way, your practice includes everything, one thing after another, and you do not lose your calmness of mind. So that's his, his one chapter on concentration. And that's one of the key things that he says. And what he, what he in Not Always So, it comes from a, a lecture that he gave at Tassahara, where he was talking about him at being at the beginning, at, at the head of the Zendo. You know, he's a teacher, he's watching everybody sitting. And he says, he doesn't just, he doesn't move around and watch each person visually. He watches everybody at the same time. And then when somebody moves, he notices that one person moves, but it's not like he's zeroing in on each person and then going around a circle, which is, so that's the, the active concentration. And that's what he's um, getting at. So, but I, I understand that it feels very, um, at, at first glance, it feels very kind of prescriptive and this is the way it is in those proportions. Uh, Karen? How would you explain the difference between right concentration and right mindfulness? That's a really good question. Well, I always um, usually go with my first thought, but I really don't have a thought about that. Uh, I think mindfulness can be moving around a lot. Mindfulness can be shifting from those four foundations. I'm just sort of making this up as I go, but this is what occurs to me. And then somebody else can weigh in too. Um, that in mindfulness, we're const I'm constantly moving between all those four uh, foundations. With concentration, I usually stay with a more singular focus. For me, it's on my breath in my belly and uh, then on my back when I'm starting to feel twisted or, you know, I have scoliosis. So I think about straightening out my posture, but concentration is, is more uh, specific and mindfulness is more general. That's how I would say it. Um, but it's a really good question. Uh, we shouldn't take anything for granted. Um, uh, Luna's heart and then Mira. 
I'm, I'm just uh, reading from Gill, uh, his definition, which is just interesting to consider. In the same way that right mindfulness is a journey of deepening self-knowledge, right concentration moves us inward toward experiencing progressively deeper wellsprings of stillness and clarity. So it almost feels like it's just an an elaboration, almost a deepening and an elaboration as he's describing it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mira and then um, Janae. So um, I agree with what you said, um, and I've asked that question to different teachers. And to me, the concentration is the one pointedness. Um, that specific object that you stay with and make an effort towards staying with it. And mindfulness is more general. So you can be mindful of a lot of different things at the same time, sound and um, sights and body sensations and mental formations, all of that that um, was spoken about earlier. So, so I think that's the difference that I understand. And Karen's question about the bliss, that's what you get from the jhana state. Jhana states, when you get into a deep concentration, you get bliss. You get, um, yes, bliss, what can I say? Joy, equanimity, all of that comes from the jhana states. And um, it's hard. It's really hard to and um, but that's where you find it. And, and of course, one one prop one prop. I'm the sorry. Practice that the Buddha knew those states. That's true. There. Um, can you? Am, am I? Um, the jhanas are in the sutras. Yeah. So and actually, they they predate Buddhism. Actually, exactly. Even. They come from Hinduism. Yeah, that's right. And Ayakema was the teacher who really taught the jhana state the most recently. Uh-huh. And there are certain teachers like Lee Brasington, who is her protege, who teaches the jhana state. So, uh-huh. yeah. But that Zen comes from jhana, just like you said. Yeah. But I think we don't talk about that enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Janae. So when you um, are mentioning or when you started talking about concentration, I I noticed I kind of reacted against it. Um, I mean, I resonate more with mindfulness um, or mindful awareness, um, and I like. Uh, luminous heart I like your definition of of being of presence in the present because concentration seems to me I think of furrowed brows I think of efforting and so I I want to steer clear of that if I can but it's interesting what Mira just said and Ron what you said um, uh, in not always so because Suzuki Roshi used that example of of taking in the whole zendo 
I would think of that as being mindful of it rather than concentrating because, I mean, he used concentration as mindful awareness, it seemed to me. He wasn't concentrating on individuals. He was just, you know, he was holding the state of, of awareness of, of everything. And then he noticed what sort of was aberrant there or what sort of moved uh, in the stillness. So, yeah, it's hard to, I think it's hard to, to really get a clear delineation between the two. Well, the thing about the Suzuki Roshi's example was he was staying with that awareness, only that awareness. He, I don't, he wasn't, um, he didn't talk about being aware of anything else except the whole room and everybody's posture. And then if he saw something that was um, moving or seemed, uh, I don't know what, but that got his attention in particular, then he would look over at that, but he would still keep his eye on the whole room. So he was very focused in that one, uh, one pointedness, even though it included the whole room. And even though he could break that, if something were, if somebody was having a difficult time, then he could see that. And then he would go back to his one pointedness of seeing the whole room. He was really fixed on staying with that. Okay. It still seems to me like that, that act um, of taking it all in is mm -hmm. more like mindful awareness and, yeah. then, and then concentrating on somebody who maybe needed help or whatever. That's just how yeah. it feels to me. But. Okay. Uh, Judy was first, and then uh, last person will be uh, Lynn. L last person for this particular subject. Uh, Judy? Yeah, thanks, Ron. I'm really appreciating the nuances of this conversation. Uh, what's coming up for me is, and, and what it feels so important in this story you've shared of Suzuki Roshi's uh, is that we're talking about right mindfulness and right concentration. So that's really important. And, and fundamentally, the right is in right relationship and in, in, in um, that we are the moment of being mindful that we are not separate. Um, that we belong to each other and how uh, sila, how upright, being upright, how ethical behavior, how um, widening our and deepening our perspective is really, really key. And that um, right mindfulness and right concentration themselves are not separate. And and I think the other important thing in Suzuki Roshi's story is the Mahayana understanding of these um, teachings. And, and particularly when Jhana gets um, reinterpreted as it becomes Chan and Zen and you know how Dogen particularly elucidates this, that um, these things, we are coming up together. So uh, my sense of right concentration, like 
Thich Nhat Hanh talks about right mindfulness, uh, he uses the word sponsor. So I think of it sort of like an AA or Al-Anon where you have a sponsor, where you have a good friend who um, uh, has your back, but also keeps you accountable uh, in, in a helpful way. So we could say that's, that's a Dharma friend. That's the Buddha together with a Buddha. Um, wake up together. And then, but there's a subject object there because by definition, there's a relationship of two, you and the good friend. And in the moment of, of truly meeting in that subject and object um, penetrate one another, and that's right concentration. And that's, and that's why in Suzuki Roshi's story, the um, awareness of the whole room and the ability to notice the one uh, as co-arising within that. And then of course, the ability to respond appropriately because there's a rate relationship to the individual and the whole as one continuous interplay. And I think these things are really hard to talk about. So what I'm appreciating is that in this conversation, uh, it, it feels like we're teasing that out and because we're expressing from our own um, practice. And, and that to me is, is really a wonderful benefit of these classes. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, it should be experiential more than uh, theoretical. Um, thank you, Judy. Uh, Lynn? I, I say should. <laughs> I hope it could be um, experiential rather than theoretical. I was um, in what Gil had written. I love, and I think it goes to Janae's uh, query too. Raises, he's saying, you know, this isn't laser like focus in the control tower in the mind. And this is the, rather we cultivate it by physically and mentally settling our attention onto the object of focus with real intimacy. So I think this object of focus, you know, with intimacy, that can be any size. That can be the whole world. That could be the whole zendo. That can be, but what is your focus of, of intimacy and this deepening into this stillness and intimacy and the mindfulness and more self-awareness. And then when you go to, and then no self. I just found what he said in this on page 83 really goes to, you know, this isn't about using brute force and about balancing this intenseness with letting go into the object that comes. Anyway, it just seems wonderful balance there. I don't think he's meaning it in that only a narrow focus way. It's but it's yeah. a purposeful focus. Yeah. Yeah, the word intimate comes up quite often in Gill's language, which I, I really appreciate. I can read the paragraph you're talking about because I have it right here. Um, concentration in meditation is not a laser-like focus originating in the control tower. I just love that image. <laughs> in the mind. Rather, we cultivate it physically and mentally 
settling our attention onto the object of focus with real intimacy. It requires letting go of distracting thoughts instead of forcibly pushing them away. To do this, it helps calm whatever mental energy is involved in any thinking. Establishing firm but soft intentness to stay focused is also helpful. Balancing this intentness with letting go into the object of concentration is useful. Dill uh, uses the word useful. He's very kind of humble. He's just trying not to give us a, too much advice, but he's just saying this could be useful if you, if you absorb what I'm saying. So. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit. Um, Oh, I just wanted to make a, I wanted to um, make a point that's just, uh, it's not really connected with what we've just been talking about, but, it, but overall, in terms of a distracted mind, my feeling or uh, uh, having, res my, this is my personal thing, that the reason that we have a mind which is so active and compulsive and busy so much. And I think, I don't know if urban people are more busy-minded than rural people, but the, the reason that we have that is because we've uh, evolved into that. That's what makes us such powerful beings. We rule the earth and we're probably destroying the earth. Not, we're not necessarily wise, but evolutionarily, we've developed this wonderful power of thought which other animals and critters don't have to our extent. And so to respect the fact that this power also cuts both ways. You know, we, we don't, we have this great power, but we're not really adept at uh, using it and integrating it as well as we could. But I think, but to have respect for the fact that our minds are so powerful and that there's a reason for that, that's nature at work over millions of years, um, creating that in human beings in a way that the other um, living beings on the planet, at least tonight, to date, haven't been able to do. So we're in charge. And just, just to have respect for that. I just wanted to get that advertising. <laughs> um, we were talking about the jhanas, and I'm com coming back to that a little bit. Uh, when Gil mentions the hindrances, he does it kind of offhandedly. Um, um, without and then he, the, I, I can't, I don't want to look for the paragraph right now where he talks about hindrances. Um, he mentions the word. Um, I think it's on page 80. Anyway, he, he talks about the hindrances. And I just thought that it's interesting that we're going to, we talk about the jhanas, which are these eight or nine states of increasingly 
um, refined concentration to, you know, being almost like nothingness. Uh, and, but the gateway to that is, unless we're, we can let go of the hindrances, the five hindrances, we can't even get to the first jhana. And which has always been interesting to me to have something as, as concrete as that as being a barrier. And it's kind of challenging, interesting, because the jhanas are so refined and um, uh, the different states of concentration as they progress are more and more rarefied um, from most people's experience. But the five hindrances are something common to all of us. And I just, uh, I'll just read that list again of the, of the hindrances which prevent us from even entering the first jhana of concentration. And um, there's different, a little bit different than what somebody else said, um, but don't take it too seriously. I mean, in terms of the actual words that describe the, the five um, hindrances. Uh, sensory desire, you know, our sense, our, our sense of pleasure uh, related to our senses and how we're, we're uh, driven to that. I have a little, glad, a little container of uh, um, what's the, granola, a little yogurt on it after dinner every night. I really look forward to that. There's something sweet about that and milky about that. And I just, I, I'm a little embarrassed about how much I like doing, I like that. And if I don't have that, I don't feel, I say, well, it's not right. Now, you know, I'm 73 years old and I'm, I like that. So, uh, you know, I think we all have, that, and that's just a small one. So sensual desire is really important. I mean, it's as simple as the food that we crave, um, not to mention sex and, um, you know, all the other good feelings that we can have. And then um, anger or ill will. This is what I, I, you know, I think that each of us has one of these hindrances that's predominant, the more predominant in our personality. So anger is the second one. And I think that my own take on Sojin was that of all these five, the anger was, or irritation was, uh, more common to him. Now he would not agree. He didn't. He never agreed with that. But he went. He said something else. But I don't. I don't buy it. I think that anger, you know. But but for what, the wonderful thing about Sojin was, in my estimation, was that that his anger was always designed, always in some level trying to help us, even though he was generally irritated. Why don't we say angry? He was irritated, and we could feel that there was something underneath that that was driving to help us, uh, even though he was, he was definitely feeling irritated. At the same time, he was trying to help us. So that was my feeling about him. Ron, and laziness is the third one. Ron, are you yeah. saying that irritations can be a hindrance or a helpful, depending on how we use them? I'm saying they can be a, a, a hindrance if we're attached to them. <laughs> so and you're... Your attach your so your yogurt and granola thing, soja's irritation or or anger or whatever could either be a hindrance or a help depending on how we use it. That's so true, or it. or it could have a little bit of both, 
but I think it's the, it's the attachment quality that's the problem. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. And uh, sloth and torpor or laziness. I mean, Zazen takes a lot, you know, to get to, to be sit to, in a busy life, um, to be able to sit Zazen with any kind of regularity and intensity is hard. Lay, lay practice is not easy if you haven't noticed it already. And, um, you know, so, you know, having that energy to, even if you're not in the mood, you know, sit down and just do Zazen come and let, let alone come over to the Zendo when you have all kinds of things to do all day. Um, takes a certain kind of energy and laziness just doesn't work that well. Skeptical doubt is the fourth one. You know, somebody is always, and I have some of that, you know, being a contrarian and what, if they, somebody says something, I want to say, well, what's the other side of that? Uh, but, and skeptical doubt could also, doubt could also be something that's valuable too. But somebody who's obsessed with, with or not obsessed, but falls into doubting over and over again, again, and that, that's their pattern. Um, it could be a problematic for not being able to just embrace or accept, accept something as, as it came to you. And finally is restlessness and anxiety. Uh, I don't, remorse is not in the descriptions that I've seen. So I don't know about remorse, but restlessness and anxiety or worry and flurry is one of the words they use sometimes. Um, is I'm very, I think that's the type I am. So I'm aware of that kind of an anxiety or, or you know, kind of anxiety uh, as being the biggest problem. And anger is just not a problem for me at all, hardly. Um, so. Remorse is on Ty's list. It's yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I haven't seen that before. So I don't know about that. Anyway, just to, to point out that these, these are five hindrances, and we all have at least one of them pretty strongly, probably likely. And, uh, and it's our attachment to those qualities that's um, problematic in terms of accessing uh, the more uh, refined levels of concentration. Does anybody want to comment on that? My comment would be, I think I have all five. <laughs> Some more than others and different times different, but I don't think they're absent from uh, any of their seeds in our storehouse, at least, yeah. rise up. Yeah. And you don't feel one stronger than the other others? Uh, no, different, different times, different ones. Ron, I'm aware we're we're about two minutes from time. I have five minutes, but okay. Yeah, we'll go by your clock. Okay. Just to say. So yeah, we we are coming coming to a close. So, <clears throat> what's a good way to close? Uh, is it? Uh, well, one. <laughs> I'm just curious who's that green gold she's watching, but we won't, we'll let that go for now. Um, Marie and Jerry. 
Huh? Mary and Jerry. Mary and Jerry are Gringos. I, I, we can't see you because you're out of focus. So. I think it. I think it, Ron. It's Dean. I think it makes sense to remind ourselves that we can make this very complicated, and it is a difficult practice, but it's a pretty simple practice. Yes. And all I, these things that we're talking about are things that we can make complicated and grab onto. And they can also be fairly simple. I agree. Thank you. Okay. Not for agreeing, just for letting me talk. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we should wind up. Uh, anybody want to, uh, Luminous Heart, do you want the last word? I don't know about last one, but I'm very happy that we were all together and and uh, sharing this. Uh, okay. Good to just talk. On, for me, it's just good to explore on the ground what these things, what these teachings mean and how we experience them and how we work with them. So thank you all for okay. being and participating. Yeah. All right, well, let's just say good night then. Nice. Thank you, bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you both. Ciao. Peace. Bows. Hi, good Mary. night. Hey. Good night, everyone. Nice, Thank you. Thank you.